you've seen the headlines. Decreased budgets and increased scrutiny mean it's more important than ever for advertisers to produce outcomes. Mountain is helping brands do that by turning the TV into a performance marketing machine. With Mountain, your ads reach tens of thousands of audience segments and get seen exclusively on premium streaming networks. And you can sit back as your campaigns automatically optimize thousands of times a day to drive peak performance. The result? High-impact ads served at the right time, right place, and to the right audience. Visit Mountain.com to learn more. Welcome to Great Minds, and our guest today is a longtime friend. We just had a hell of a fun reunion here. I think we shared a, a fine sandwich. I believe it was from Ben's Delicatessen, and uh, we had a great reunion. And uh, with us today on Great Minds is the founder of the Palmer Group, CEO of the Palmer Group, probably the most learned guy in our industry about where we've been, where we are, and where we're going in technology. And I'm talking about the great Shelly Palmer. So welcome, Shelly. Wow, that's some intro. Thank you. Um, I'm a little bit embarrassed. I, I am pr <laughs> proud to be your hype man and all, uh, in this case, Shelly, completely true. So Shelly, you uh, exceed me in, in one way in particular. You exceed me in many ways. But I, I say uh, half jokingly that I've had the same phone number and email address longer than almost anyone I know, north of 20 years. You've got me by another 20 years. Uh, the Palmer Group, 41 years old, I think of two great 41s, you and Tom Seaver, uh, together. Go back to those early days, Shelley. It's unusual for someone to have such a long run as an independent entrepreneur. Go back to the earliest days of the Palmer Group. And did you ever imagine then that 40 years later, you'd still be sitting here doing very different things, but in one key way, your own boss, the same thing? I mean, the short answer is no. That's the short answer. The, the thing that was interesting, I, I've worked since I can remember, my mom and dad owned retail music stores and ultimately some wholesale and mail order. And they kind of expanded it. Mom and dad are music educators and uh, basically music teachers. And my dad in the Air Force led the uh, 504th Air Wing Band as his tour. And he just, when they got out, they went to teach in Bed-Stuy and they opened a little music studio to make some after school money. I was told to pay for the babysitter. So when I was really little, the first kind of things I remember is being in the music store. And I was, my allowance was based on, uh, they had dozens, uh, hundreds, I guess, of guitars hanging. And my job was like, I made my allowance by tuning the guitars and dusting them. So I, I've been working, literally working for as long as I can remember. And when um, I went to college for television at NYU Film School, my degrees in direction and production of film and TV from NYU and from Tisch. And I got out immediately, went to work for a guy named Don Elliott, who was a, a composer, a jingle composer and tremendously talented man. And I worked there for a couple of years and then we parted ways and I started my own company. That was in, I'm going to say late, late 80, 81, 82, somewhere in that zone. I was either late 80, early 81, somewhere in that area. And at the end of the day, um, I never looked back. We started as a music production company. And I had a bunch of my film school buddies. So we were doing like, you know, videos, music videos were just starting. If you remember in the 80s, that's when MTV hit and CNN was in New York as well. And so you, for, you throw a camera on your shoulder and you were going to be working for one or two people. You were making music videos or you're going to be shooting news for CNN. Those are the two possibilities. And we're writing a lot of music and I, I didn't really think about it. We just we just started this audio and video production company and every, jobs just kept coming in and people that it's you funny talk about how long I've been in business. Everybody I started with has either already retired or is very, very high up in the food chain. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. You know, or, everybody's a president or a something, a CEO, or they're 
out <laughs> or, or in some cases gone <laughs> gone completely that, in some cases <laughs> absolutely right all right hopefully as long as it's not you or i god bless so so shall you've seen so much and have worked with some of the biggest players in the world uh and in some cases have presciently forecast where we're going in a lot of cases uh, for your universe of clients and the Shelley Palmer ecosystem literally held people's hands through the journey. Go back, I'm gonna go back 20 years, it's too much to cover everything, but let's go back to one of your early clients working in what was then the interactive enhanced TV world at Disney, uh, going back to give or take 2001, 2002. So let's call that roughly 20 years ago. That was sort of the beginning of the whole tech-led revolution of our industry. Talk about the landscape then, and look where we are right now uh, with the whole evolution of the streaming world, which has shaken the entire industry you know, pretty hard by its ankles. Talk about what you were seeing then, how right we were, how wrong we were, and how that landscape has evolved. So I tell you what, Matt, the, everybody, I think, can predict the future with very little effort. What we can't do is predict the timing. And so in 1993, I got an idea about interactive television. And I know it was 1993 because that's when I filed the original patent for it. And right around the turn of the last century, if you will, right around the turn of the century, Disney shows up on my front door and says, hey, we'd like to buy this patent. And it, it's a patent that teaches OCAP, the Open Cable, uh, cable Applications Protocol. And it's really how you would move data around a, a cable television system. In this case, it was and ended up being used to uh, allow people to play Who Wants to Be a Millionaire in sync on their desktop or their laptop with the broadcast. And um, also for Monday Night Football to be able to do some interactive gaming with Monday Night Football. So at the end of the day, right around, I'm going to call it 2000, 2001, as what we're, we call the modern era was still a little bit away from us, it was very clear that, very clear that the future was going to be streaming. The future was going to be uh, a one-to-one connection for each viewer. Broadcasting was one-to-many. Um, we, it just seemed obvious that if the World Wide web could work this way, that very, very quickly we were going to be in a world where there was going to be a, 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 an audience of one, a solo, a personal audience. And uh, it was in 2000, I'm going to say four or so, Channing Dawson, one of the founders of HGTV, and I were at a, a bar having an adult frosty beverage. And back then you could actually smoke a cigar in a bar back then in New York City. And we were. And Channing asked, I think, the most important question that I was asked on the subject ever. He said, when do you think my media is going to be empowered to find me? Well, of course, the answer today is TikTok. But back then there was no answer. Back then it was like, hmm. And so we sat there and started to ponder the way you can when you have an adult frosty beverage and a good friend. You, we started to ponder like, OK, what would have to happen? Like, what are the things that would need to be in place? What kind of data would have to be around? What kind of what kind of distribution tools would have to be around? What kind of consumer empowerment would there be with it? What would they hold in their hand? Would they have a, a phone or a small little viewer? Like what what would it be in your regular television set we were sitting there just spitballing a couple of years later i wrote a book called television disrupted the transition from network to networked tv and i think that came out in 2005 or six and honestly matt that book when i went to uh reread it on its anniversary um i was stunned at how i got everything right but the timing and that's why I say it's like, I'm not that smart. I just, I was able, you, you could see. And the thing that I, I thought was prescient about that book, looking back on it, is in the early chapters, I talk about making about $250 per viewer, subscriber, user, whatever you want to call them. Like if you're a cable person, you call them a sub. If you're a, a movie person, you, you know, you call them an audience member. If you're a TV person, they're a view, like however you want to describe a person. Per person, you were looking at about 250 bucks. Where'd that come from? The various windows. 
it started as a network TV show or it started as a movie. Then it ended up in, you know, in, on the airline in a hotel and pay-per-view in like, like however it ended up. That was about 250 bucks. And, and the, the book it, it has a, a thesis in there that says, okay, we're going to move from network to network to TV. So financially, what do we think would happen is the question you ask. And you get down to about six, eight bucks per person as opposed to 250 something dollars. And you realize that model's going to break. And the whole thesis of the book is the model's going to break. And so the the, uh, the thesis was right. And I got all I got all the component parts right. I, you know, attaboy, pat on the back, all that. But the timing was so incredibly wrong. It's like, okay, genius. What, my, one of my lawyers, Clayton P. Knowles Jr., may he rest in peace. He said, you know the difference between a rich genius and a broke genius? A rich genius is, uh, well, I should say, a broke genius is two years ahead of his time, and a rich genius is six months ahead of his time. I completely missed, like, okay, big swing miss, any way you want it, whatever metaphor you like, the timing was totally wrong. The thesis was right. The idea was right. So I give myself credit. I give myself half credit for that book, not, not full credit. Fantastic stuff, Shell. So we're going to have to do a whole series of episodes to go into every uh, one of the uh, interesting tech-driven innovations that you have been so prescient in, but let's stick where we are now. So you said something earlier, it was easy to see what was going to happen with streaming in 2001, and then going back on your comment on the timing and being perhaps a tad askew, that the model would be broken. We've seen in a relatively short period of time everybody run into the streaming business as if they're standing online on Sunday at Zabar's. Can't wait to be first in when the door opens. Or I should say my dear friend, uh, Nikki Russ Fetterman, waiting online at Russ and Daughters is what I, what I should say. Talk about that and, uh, you know, this is an incredible series of events and consumers arguably the big winners but the business model no question is broken and on top of that what we're about to see with the writers guild and a likely strike it's really broken there are a couple things that you have to i think take into consideration here there was a time where money was free and it was easy to create a company and call the metric growth i'm going to grow every quarter and I don't know how I am going to monetize, which is a fancy word for making money, my, my organization or my goods and services. But I do know that the network effect is golden. And if I have hundreds of millions of users, that this is going to be the major asset of the corporation. And we're a growth company. We're growing every quarter. And so you would spend like drunken sailors against growth. And it was easy to do because money was free flowing. After 2008, uh, we got out of that. We got out of the crazy. We had basically zero interest rates for forever after that, and th there was just so much money on the sidelines. An immense amount of wealth was created, and a lot of capital was looking to be deployed. And it was if you had a decent idea and you had a decent model and you could demonstrate growth, you you were golden. Well, money's not free anymore. And I don't know an investor that's interested in how many users you have. They're interested in the bottom line and what kind of ROI they can get because they want to see their money return something. Um, production has become insanely expensive in one respect and insanely cheap in another. And we'll get to how cheap in a minute and how much that's going to change in a second. But when you think about what we've asked the world to do, we've asked the world to be highly inconvenienced and we have taught them to have to be an audience of one. And now they're their own program director. I defy people who no longer have a broadcast television contract, meaning I don't have a cable box in my house, which is an awful lot of people, to know when anything is on if they don't hear it on social. So all of a sudden, you've got different generations interacting with the media business in very different ways. What would have been an on-air promo 10 years ago now has no meaning because it's only going to be good for a heavy TV viewer. And the heavy TV viewer is going to see it so many times. They're going to hate you for just promoing it to death. And the light TV viewer is never going to see your promo. They're not there enough to see it. And someone who's not 
consuming media on linear television is never going to see it anyway because you don't have a way to give them an on-air promo. Maybe you can throw a promo on YouTube and that's called a trailer. It's not called a promo and it doesn't really come with any meaningful way to drive audience. Like everything we know about how to build an audience, lead in, lead out ratings. All that stuff is now in some amorphous cloud of like, well, I'm going to throw that in my mix. And who gets hurt? Who gets hurt are advertisers that require awareness of a program, of a marketing program to drive velocity at retail. If you have a package good inside a 20,000 square foot supermarket that's in an inner aisle, that's a commodity that people just kind of get all the time and you're competing against the store brand and you're competing against low price alternatives and your, drive, your job is to drive velocity and your planogram facings are just what they are. You only have two square feet and that's it. You're never getting more. Like, what are you going to do to drive velocity at retail? You can't offer two for a dollar every month. You got, I mean, you got to do something. How do you reach this audience? And the thing is, you don't now. So a one-to-one audience is amazing if you're selling customized automobiles and, and there's some margin in there. But when you're selling you know, uh, cans of soup or chili or paper goods or you name it, condiments, you, you, anything that would be in the middle aisle in a supermarket, you're having a bad day. So the broadcast industry is having trouble doing what it used to do best, which is help you drive velocity at retail. They're charging a lot more for lower audiences and they're still worth it because it's at least the biggest audience you can get in one place. And now we've got literally different technologically empowered generations. Every 20 months, the people are different in the way they consume media. And so it's not only that the model is sort of broken financially, this everybody's matured technologically at a different rate across the entirety of of the demo, of every demographic, it has become more complex than ever, and it's become financially impossible to justify the kind of spend that you used to spend either on programming or promotion, and in some cases, a pure just purely on advertising. You sit back and go, "Wow, this is just not. I can't get enough return on these dollars. I have to come up with a different way to do this." And we've seen some pretty innovative stuff, but you know, we're we're not again. We're not going to see again a rating big enough, other than like a. Super Bowl rating or Academy Awards rating where you can buy with confidence that you're going to you know hit enough people to get a cultural influence and become talked about by any by a big enough number of people to move a national needle that's that's going to that's really hard you've got this odd duality of a world now that has more tools more horsepower to amplify anything than at any time in history that we can think of. And you've also got this odd phenomena juxtaposed against that, let's call it that era or aura of amplification of anonymity, where something can be, uh, we, we watch, uh, 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 I don't watch a whole lot, but we watched something uh, called Gaslit with uh, Sean Penn and Julia Roberts. And it was about, it was about Watergate. And I thought it was as good, you know, or as well done as Succession, which is sort of a gold standard for today. And Succession is certainly, you know, a, a wonderful program. Um, most people who I've raised Gaslit to have not heard of it. Sean Penn is a big star. Julia Roberts is a huge star, doesn't do a lot. Many other great people in the cast telling a, a story about Watergate that was absolutely fascinating. Uh, and and I thought brilliantly done. How do we end up in this odd duality of amplification and anonymity? There are clear winners and losers, but a lot of losers in that scenario. Couple couple of layers to that, Matt. First of all, it was on Showtime, and that is not a top tier buy. If you only have a certain number of five and ten dollar bills a month. You're going to get Apple TV. You're going to get Disney. You're going to get Paramount Plus. You're going to get Hulu, maybe um, HBO Max, maybe. Uh, Showtime is way down off that list. So that's you had. And by the way, you could you could get into it and get out of it in a you know on a special kind of like maybe only spend six eight ten bucks to get it, or maybe buy two months of it. So that's thing one. But the anonymity is uh, it's fascinating, but it it's not the issue. The issue humbly 
is that if you look at your smartphone, it is the finest filter ever created in history. You blanket yourself in the comfort of the information and content that makes you happy. You do not need to be uncomfortable for one second. If something takes you out of your comfort zone, it is a, a swipe or a click away. It's gone forever, never to return and no way for it to come back. You're done. And so when you are fighting, it's one thing like you, you, you would not blame the NBC television network for a bad show. If you watched an episode of something and it sucked, you wouldn't say, well, I'm never watching NBC again ever because like that show sucked. It's just not a behavior you would exhibit. There's NBC sports, there's NBC news, there's other programming. It would never occur to you to like, I mean, some people are crazy, but it wouldn't occur to a normal person to like abandon NBC forever because of one thing they saw there. But when you see something that's socket uh, streaming, from a source and you decide this creator or this distributor is off your list, th there's no way for them to get back. And so this filter system is so powerful, much, much more powerful than anything else we've ever seen. And so if you couple that with anonymity, if you couple that with cancel culture, if you couple that with zeitgeist, if you like, if you throw everything in the mix that you could think of, the power is in the hand of the consumer in a way that, you know, careful what you wish for, you might get it. So where we used to have a cable bundle and Americans used to like the all-you-can-eat buffet and I'd pay, I don't know, 75 bucks a month and making that number up and you have like 100 cable channels and you say, well, I, don't, I only watch three of them. Why am I paying for the 100? It's like, well, you don't understand how the cable business works. It really does work. You're going to like this. And people would channel surf. I defy anyone to even know what channel surfing is now. And so that whole serendipitous discovery is I'm flipping through the channels and I see something. It's done. I'm my own program director. I am my own filter. And my social network now becomes a small pod of people who think like me, who act like me, who are in my echo chamber. They will feed me what it is I am to watch because that's the only way I get promos. Ah, uh, that's a little tough because my immediate world doesn't necessarily have a gigantically open mind for serendipitous content to enter. Once in a while, it's certainly not as uh, ubiquitous as when I was channel serving and accidentally on channel 2640 on satellite or, you know, channel 150 on cable, I came upon something that interested me. Wow, I could... They have a tennis channel. I'm making that up. I mean, you know, it's like I'm, I'll watch tennis for a minute like that. You don't you will never see tennis unless you subscribe to tennis. You'll never see soccer unless you subscribe to soccer. You're not going to run into anything new. So how are you going to find it? Well, this amplifier, social media amplifier. But what's is Elon going to tell you? Are you following Elon? Is he telling you what shows to watch? Because basically, if it's not a top tier influencer who is forced into your feed by someone else. It's your group. And who do you trust? You trust your group, your tribe, your people, your, your or the people you follow. So, you know, these are small pockets. Now, everyone will argue that this is fine. It's completely fine. I And by the way, I have no problem with it either. On an individual um, basis as a consumer, as an advertiser, this is a nightmare. It's a nightmare. I've got all these small pockets of, of like-minded people that are that are very, very, very specific in what they will and will not accept. And I must adapt to that. And I have to, I have to message them appropriately in their vernacular, in their dialect, in the, the digital native way that they want to, because they'll know that I'm not authentic immediately. If I go on Twitter and I do something, or if I go on Facebook or do something or Instagram, and it's out of, out of what the, the norm of that group in that environment is expecting I'm in serious trouble because then I'm just, I'm just ignored immediately and I'll be blocked and that'll be the end of me. Remember, it's an amazing filter. So advertisers and, and the business itself is having a very hard time catching up with the immense power, the immense power. They always, by the way, consumers always had immense power, Matt, but we never felt it by, there was never evidence-based data to say, this is what you didn't do. You just have a low rating or a high rating. Right now, it's like, this is exactly who hates you. So well said. All right, you led me exactly where I wanted to go. And I do want to get into uh, some of the most timely and topical areas 
that the Palmer Group is looking at with your client base, uh, literally all around the world, but, but let's stay where we are just for one more second. So let's talk about what success looks like today. Success used to be share, and you talked about ratings and very few things, the Super Bowl, a couple other sports entertainment properties. That's really it in terms of you know, that big tentpole classic rating. Success used to look like, you know, for shows, the early days, let's go back, Shelley, to Texaco Star Theater, to the Gillette, Cav Gillette Cavalcade of Stars, when you had a limited number of channels and you had much of America watching whatever was on those few channels. Today, we live in a world that is beyond niche. And what success looks like is very different. The challenges for brands and advertisers, very different. Uh, if I posit to you that much of the world today as to how we're doing business is built off a world that no longer exists, true or not true, or somewhere in between? So I, you can't indict the workflow and process of an entire industry, but we are not taking advantage of the things we could be taking advantage of as well as we could. People like to talk about data and that's what they like to do. They like to talk about it. Turning data into action is a very different thing than talking about data and driving velocity at retail, whether it's goods or services, is generally the job of every marketer. You know, I just got to sell more stuff as fast as I possibly can. The more I sell, the higher the turn, better life's going to be for everybody. So, if you have very sophisticated data-driven tools, then the computer does for you what the network used to do for you. So if there was ABC, NBC, and CBS 100 years ago, and you could get a 30 share on a Thursday night, everybody gets paid on Friday. This is great. They're going to the supermarket on Friday back in the day. I'll take an ad. I'm going to sell my widget. There's no reason in the world you can't do that in a data-driven environment against a thousand target audiences or ten thousand target audiences. You don't. There isn't three uh, networks. There's three thousand networks, and if you aggregated three thousand different distribution channels, this is what computers do very, very, very well. If you're using data to sit here and paint target personas, and you're not actually customizing the work for those target personas, then it doesn't really matter. It only goes so far. You can overfit your models. You can over-target. You don't need to be so precise. It's like, oh, they live in a cold climate. We have to show them the car has to be, you know, with snow tires on it, and it's got to be snow on the background. It's like, really? I don't know if that's what you need to do. But the message needs to be correct. You're, if, if you think people are, are thinking uh, safety in one area for your tires and uh, aggressive control and, and, you know, good road handling in another – Knowing those target personas, knowing that and using data-driven tools to get the right message from the right person, right place, right time, that is available right now across the entire streaming landscape. It is time-consuming. Uh, not to do. It's time-consuming to set up. The workflow and process across most enterprises don't allow for this. By the way, Matt, and I don't mean to point fingers, I've got clients that won't spend extra money right now. They'll run the same commercial on we and lifetime and espn and nbc you just want to strangle them it's like th these are different audiences and they're already segmented and even even if you believe that you don't want to make like super hyper targeted stuff you can make just broadly based this is for women 25 54 who have a couple of kids at home and they're responsible to go to the supermarket and put stuff in the refrigerator. This is for guys who live by themselves, who have a job, who basically the refrigerator is empty, but every once in a while they got to go to a bodega and pick up dinner. Like there are, it's, you, you can segment an audience well enough to understand that just looking at various distribution channels, why people won't even do that is, is out of my understanding. I'm hoping that as data-driven tools become mindless that we're going to see a big shift. And I think with the advent of generative AI, everyone believes that 
AI was invented November 30th, 2022. Like it popped out magically when ChatGPT was, you know, debuted. It's like, this has been around for a while. Just people haven't been willing to use it. But, but in practice, these tools are going to change everything you possibly can imagine with respect to looking at data, understanding it, making it actionable and getting the right message in front of the right person at the right place at the right time. And it's going to be, it's going to be really uneven for a minute as people who aren't thinking about this gets absolutely sideswiped by the people who are. People are going to get clobbered who don't get into this now. It's too easy to do and the efficacy is too great. And this is like, there are certain things computers do well, crunching numbers, top of the list. So let, let's, let's dig deeper here, Shelley. You and the other only person I could think of in your class who was in digital before anybody really knew what it was, was uh, the great Bob Greenberg at RGA, who we love. You've been looking at AI, not just for a few months, but for give or take 20 years. Talk about the evolution of it and what is it about what's been introduced lately, uh, mostly dominated by the big players in our industry that has made this the flavor of the month at Baskin Robbins. And then let's dig in a little deeper into what we're going to see those changes create for us. So years ago, I said today is the, you're experiencing the slowest rate of change you'll ever experience in your life. And in 1999 to 2000, right around back then, Rick Kurzweil wrote a book. And in that book, he had a thesis called The Law of Accelerating Returns. And what he said was that technology ecosystems tend to improve exponentially. Uh, this idea that uh, of exponential time. Now, most people don't think exponentially because we think in a linear way. And I, uh, everyone who's ever listened to a, a speech of mine in the last basically 23 years has heard me talk about the law of accelerating returns in the opening uh, because that's that's how you need to think. And it's hard for people to understand what that means there's the classic chessboard you know one grain of rice on the first two grains of rice on the second four grains of rice on the third and then you have mount everest at the 64th square right i mean that's that's the one i use is the lily pads and the lily pond there's one lily pad in the lily pond and the pond uh, it's going to take 30 days for the lily pads to cover the pond on what day is the pond half covered and the answer is day 29 so between the first day and the 29th day, the pond doesn't look like the lily pads are doing a big deal. It's not like they don't grow like across the thing and do, do half. They grow randomly all over the pond. Then you go, eh, there's hardly any lily pads in the pond. On day 29, you're, the pond is already dead. The next morning, it's fully covered. No oxygen gets to the fish. It's done. But humans don't think that way. You'd look at that pond and you'd go, yeah, we got some time. On day 29, you'd still think you had time. So- we have had improvements in artificial intelligence on a pure exponential scale. It has gone from statistical machine learning to neural networks. The neural networks then got enhanced with uh, pre-trained transformers, which is where we are today. And the generative pre-trained transformers that they're using at uh, ChatGPT, GPT-3.5, GPT-4, uh, which are being used today, the Llama model at Meta, the Lambda model at Google. These are large language models that have been trained on billions of parameters. And in the most simplistic way I can describe it, they are word calculators. Um, Matt is always looking for trouble and trouble is always looking for Matt are two completely different sentences, but they have exactly the same words in them. And so what the pre-trained transformer models are able to do is they have a thing called self-attention and they're able to look at the order of words over billions and billions and billions of words that they have read. The corpuses are huge. That's why they're called large language models. And they make a prediction. I'm oversimplifying this like crazy. They make a prediction about what word should come next. They don't know what the word means. They don't have any context. They don't know what a paragraph means. They don't know what your sentence is asking. These are not sentient beings. They don't think they're not people. These are word calculators. They literally calculate the next word. But the corpuses are so large and the models are so well-tuned that you've got GBT4 passing the bar exam and being able to take like all kinds of GRE exams and it basically passed the Turing test, which by the way, is for people to fail, not computers to pass, but that's another story. So where are we today? Where we are is at a place where you could take a giant uh, table of data 
And you could say to to uh, the the application chat GPT, hey, here's a big pile of data. Would you help me analyze this? And it's going to start teaching you the the subject of statistics. It's going to teach you about linear and logistical regression. It's going to teach you about standard deviation. It's going to teach you about normal distribution. It's going to then perform those calculations if you ask it to, and then output it and say, well, okay, do all that stuff you just told me about and give me some insights. And it will. This is the kind of capability set that people are not really understanding when it comes to generative AI. Everyone's talking about it. it may be sentient, you know, it doesn't have a girlfriend. I can make it misogynistic. I can... Wow, this is not a toy. You input your own data into a law. You and if you were to embed a corpus of your own over the large language model to to customize the model for your business, that's the best approach. But even taking the large language models as they sit right now, you give it the data you want it to have and help you with, and you ask it to do stuff. It's going to do stuff. And we're a minute away. We're a minute away from these tools being given access to the web. And what I mean by that is. Right now, there are some plugins that are coming that allow uh, ChatGPT or GPT uh, for uh, Lambda, Llama to go out. Bard is the Google version. Bing has a GPT-4 uh, thing happening in their Bing search engine. Right now, they don't go out to the web and do your bidding without a plugin or being explicitly connected to something. But once a large language model can make an HTTP request, can go out to the web and go navigate a website, which by the way, does not require anybody's permission at all. It just, you have to just give it the power to do that. This is going to be crazy. And I, 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 I want to throw one thing in here that's kind of really important for people to understand. There are three layers to the tech stack right now in, in generative AI. ChatGPT is an application that sits over a model. The model is GPT-4 or 3.5. And that sits on infrastructure. The infrastructure at the moment for that is, is at Microsoft, but it could uh, you could run that similar infrastructure on the big tech companies. You could run it at Google, Salesforce, IBM, Tencent, Baidu, Amazon, of course. These are all gigantic infrastructure. NVIDIA, these run on GPUs, graphics processing units. And you can, you, these are the, where you would run the inference workload and where you would train the models. So big tech, once again, has control of our lives and the models sit over the infrastructure and then the applications sit on top of that. So GPT, uh, chat GPT is uh, an application that is using GPT-4 or 3.5. Now, and you asked me two weeks ago if what the future of this was, and I would talk to you about value creation. I would have said to you, you know, Matt, big tech, is required for this. These are large language models. It's billions of parameters. They're anticipating trillions of parameters. We're going to run out of data long before these models are fully trained. Like the synthetic data business is going to be the data business of the future. Uh, you need to train these models. You're going to make it use AI to make data to train AI. Two Sundays ago, and this is uh, the beginning of April. So let's call it the middle of March, March 12, 13, 14. Stanford University gets a hold of uh, Llama, which is Meta's large language model. And Meta had sent it out to academic researchers. And the goal there was to let them do academic research, which the Stanford guys did. And what they created was a thing called Alpaca. They did a 7 billion parameter model. How did they make it? They actually sent 54,000 uh, inputs to chat GPT. I'm sorry, to GPT 3.5. And they created a concept called self-instruct where the model was to teach itself how to be a large language model. The outcome of that was they were able to create the equivalent of a large language model that I have running on my MacBook Pro sitting in front of me. And it is not GPT-3 and it's not as good as ChatGPT, but it's pretty good. The most important part about this conversation is that no one can tell me what I can do with it. And within a couple of days, we had already learned because it's there's a lot of open source tools here and there's a lot, a lot of people on GitHub who have good, good, good code to work on and to augment and to learn from. We were embedding our own training into this model. And all of a sudden, I created an employee of the Palmer Group 
I now have it running 65 billion param a 65 billion parameter model of Llama um, on my computer, and it's got uh, it's read the entirety the entirety of the SQL database that holds the 19,000 blog posts I've written in my career, and it's analyzing them at will to just surface things I need. And we're doing it as an experiment internally. Why am I telling you this? Because this these tools are going to run on people's handhelds. This is not going to be the bastion of big tech. This is going to be distributed everywhere. And you are going to see this ubiquitously um, distributed in a the same way that the personal computer democratized information. That is how this is going to democratize not, uh, either knowledge work or call it artificial intelligence, call it whatever you want to call it. I, I These are narrow focused tools that do incredible work. And if you're a advertiser, you want to be thinking about generative synthetic media, the ability to on the fly, create ads that are completely custom images that are completely custom videos that are completely custom uh, videos that if you have a, a, a new, new and improved package, if you, you will teach this, your model that the package is new and improved and across the board, every one of your ads will change without you doing a thing. The number of people that will be displaced, the number of people that will um, have new jobs, the art directors, the directors, the, the creative directors, the distributors, the media buyers and planners, uh, how you're going to determine what you're going to put in front of people, how you're going to sit back and say, what does my media mix modeling look like? What does my attribution modeling look like? You're going to ask the large language model questions about, well, here's all the data I have. Help me understand how to get, you know, 5% better efficacy out of my, out of my distribution plan. These are going to become table stakes. And I don't mean like in the far future, I'm talking about now, like we're working on this stuff right now. It's the most exciting time ever. It's danger. Like nothing has ever got me more juiced up or scared me more. This is both. And, you know, a lot of people are going to find themselves on the wrong end of this technology, but a lot of people are going to find themselves on the right side of it. And I think the answer to the problem set that we were talking about at the beginning of this podcast, which is you know, yeah, the big three are done and everything is so complicated and there's a million different ways to reach people and everyone's got their own filter and they can turn you off. It's like, you know how you solve for that? You let artificial intelligence analyze and understand each audience member individually or by segment or by the data that the audience member will allow us to look at and serve them what they want to be served that is relevant to them. And magically, this whole business is going to switch back magically. I, that's how I see it. I see it full circle. So all, all I can think about is you tell this incredible real-time story of the change that's happening right now is uh, as a kid, there were two big ones. There was Encyclopedia Britannica and there was the World Book, right? You remember? Of course. And uh, we were a World Book family. And you would literally wait at the end of the year. You had that initial set of A through Z and then every year you would get a book that would tell you what had happened in 1971, 1972, et cetera. And that's how you knew what had happened that year. Let's talk about some of the unintended consequences that you see in your Shelley Palmer crystal ball that we might be talking about a year from now. First of all, my, my crystal ball is no better than anybody else's, but uh, there are a couple of things that keep me up at night, more than a couple. People believe what they want to believe. That's just a fact of human nature. You, you believe what you want to believe. But I can help you along. And deep fakes had gotten to a certain point prior to the debut of a consumer-grade generative AI world. Now, mid-journey five in photorealistic mode, which no longer requires you to prompt craft in a crazy way. Uh, you just talk to it in English and say, I would like a very photorealistic 8K well-lit picture of this person, meaning I take a screenshot of Matt Schechner and, uh, you know, in handcuffs on a perp walk. And it, it'll be indistinguishable from a photograph taken by a press photographer indistinguishable 
And so if you want to believe that you were taken away on handcuffs and I've got a story that's compelling, now you have to explain it. And you know the old rule of the universe when you're explaining, you're losing. And so the, and I'm, that is the most banal thing I can think of. Military is going to use this. Bad actors are going to use this. Hackers are going to use it. Scammers are going to use it. You know, people are worried about students teaching. I teach at Syracuse. I teach at the Newhouse School. I'm, I'm a professor of advanced media and residence at the Newhouse School uh, of Public Communications. And I teach in the master's program. You can tell when your kids are using chat GPT to do their essays because it writes better than they do. So if you know your students, you know they didn't write this stuff. That's not the issue. The issue is the crazy stuff that's going to happen that you really can't tell. We have a course at, uh, at courses.shellypalmer.com. We have a course for Web3. We've got a course for crypto and NFTs. And the newest one is generative AI for executives. Matt, I, 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 on the first week, like 40,000 people signed up for it. I, the, the, I think people know that this is the thing now, but they really have to know that it's the thing for everything. Like you may be thinking about, I'm going to use it to, for recipes. I'm going to learn to be a better cook. I'm going to ask it to do a, a plan for me so I can be healthier, or, you know, monitor my health or get my, you know, my diet together. It's like, yeah, you can do all of that, but you just ask it to do stuff that you shouldn't ask it to do, and it's going to get it done. And so I think we're we're looking in a world, as always, that is um, there are good actors and bad actors. And thankfully, in my experience, the good people outweigh the bad people. But this amplifies the power of bad people in a way that exactly the same way it amplifies the power of the good people. And so we're you know we're we're going to have to learn a lot. Society has come a long way. We're all technologically better than we were. You know, 10, 15 years ago, not everyone knew how to use email properly or attach stuff to or Excel or PowerPoint or any number of programs that we all take for granted today. People were scared of text messaging or social networks. Not, no, everyone knows how to do all that attaching. Like every, it's, if I say, I don't remember the last time someone said to me, help me attach a, a, a picture to this email. I mean, everybody knows how to do all of that. 10 years ago, that wasn't true. People were scared of it. They thought it was for kids. They didn't know how to do it. Everybody knows how to do all that now. What no one knows how to do, unless you're in it deep, is how to prompt craft in a way that gets you the exact outcome you're looking for. And as this these tools improve and evolve, you won't even need to do that. You'll just need to be able to describe it, just any way you can get it described. And once it's described, you're not even going to need to do that because you'll be able to automate the process. I'll give you a short example. We have a tool here, and this is a simple thing for everyone to do. It's going to be included in Microsoft um, Office any minute. We built immediately a tool set that does the following. It takes a Zoom meeting. It takes the transcript from the Zoom meeting, which Zoom provides. It pulls it into GPT 3.5, which is all it needs. We, we don't have enough tokens to do it in GPT-4. It summarizes the meeting pulls out the action items, puts the bullets in an email. Hey, Matt, thanks for the call today. It was great to spend time with you. You said this, I said that. Our action items are this, your action items are that. If that's not your understanding, please let us know. And it emails it to everyone that was in the meeting. That used to take an admin, something on the order of, depending on the length of the meeting, somewhere to 15 and 45 minutes to really get together a nice formulated email and pass it around to the people who would have to sign off on it. Go, yeah, yeah, don't forget to add this. Yeah, yeah, don't forget to add that. This email is about 10 seconds after the meeting is done. Everybody gets a copy of it and whoever wants to sign off on it, signs off on it and it's sent. So let's say I could increase everybody in the office's capability, their productivity by five to 15% by doing absolutely nothing, but enhancing their workflow and process with generative AI, get you five to 15% more productivity out of every single person that does anything in the office, how would your business change? That It's this kind of thing where you, and now take, take every place in your, in your business where there's workflow and process, every place, every event that you put on, every, every thing where you need to gather people, every blog post, every piece of advertising, every customization, every version of everything on the deliverables list and say, well, that used to take someone, you know, a half a day to like make the deliverables list. You ask chat GPT, Hey, I'm holding an event. What's a typical deliverables list for social media. 
just type that question in. Out comes the checklist. Oh, please put that in a CSV file I can I can import into a Excel spreadsheet. Well, when Microsoft incorporates it into Word or Excel, you'll just say, and it'll just show up in Excel. And then it's going to start filling. So it was like, this is going to become just stuff people use. And that's where we are. So what we're doing at our company is we're just helping all of our clients prepare the workflow and process and prepare, get, you know, what's new, what's next. You have to get people aligned that this is, this is what's coming. And you also have to, this is across the whole enterprise. So there's this will have implications in HR, in administration, in the CFO's office, in the data office, creative services, there's a customer service. There, there is no part of the organization that won't benefit from putting a tool set like this to work. And there's an amazing upside to this and everyone's going to take advantage of it. And Matt, to your point, there is an unbelievable downside to it. And we just got to put on our seatbelts and hope for the best. Yeah, this is going to be a fascinating and I suspect bumpy ride. But Shelly, I, I knew it would be interesting. It was more than that. Uh, I love that every time I talk to you, I learn something. Uh, and uh, let, let's do this again soon. There's so many other areas to touch on. I'm so impressed and a, a fan of the breadth and scope of what you've created. Uh, the Palmer brand is synonymous with excellence in our industry, and you're a jewel of a guy. And I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us here on Great Minds. My pleasure. Thank you, sir. TV is no longer just a brand awareness play. With Mountain's self-serve connected TV ad software, you can get real-time data-backed insights that take the guesswork out of TV ad measurement. With Mountain, you can track your connected TV ad performance down to the last decimal, compare it to your other channels with leading web analytics integrations, and even see which viewers are taking the next step to visit your website or make a purchase, regardless of what household device they use. Visit mountain.com to learn more.